This morning we are uh, continuing our study through the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark uh, chapter 4, Jesus' parables of the kingdom. And we're looking at a couple more of of Jesus' parables today. And you can follow along right there in your bulletin. Uh, Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 26. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on, on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for your holy word and uh, that it is the truth. And we thank you that as we come to the truth, we find that your word is a word of grace as well. And uh, it's a word that leads us to your son and Lord, we want to know him in the power of his resurrection more deeply. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that we might hear your word and receive it with faith and with obedience. And we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're looking at the next of Jesus' parables from Mark chapter 4. And you'll notice how this passage that I just read to you begins in verse 26 by saying, And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed. And so Jesus is teaching here about the kingdom of of God. And so this morning I'd like to just say a few words in in the introduction about the kingdom of God and uh, before we dive into this passage. And the reason for that is because when you hear uh, the phrase, the kingdom of God, what comes to mind for you? I know for me, for many years after becoming a Christian, what I thought of when I heard the word kingdom of God is I thought of a place in heaven where there were angels and the spirits of people who died and there, uh, and there were clouds maybe, and it was a spiritual place. And uh, that's a not totally wrong idea, but it's definitely misleading about what the Bible means by the kingdom of God. Because when you hear the kingdom of God, the thing that should come to mind for you is uh, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom is not coming to heaven. The kingdom kingdom is already established in heaven. It's coming to earth. It's an earthly reality. Jesus is building a kingdom, a civilization in the earth that is like heaven. And what do kingdoms have? Well, kingdom has a king. And we have a king. Jesus is our king. He's on the throne in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Kingdoms have laws. We have a law that we live under that's given to us in the Bible. It's summarized by love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And kingdoms have citizens. 
You know, and we're all citizens of God's kingdom, and you become a citizen by, by being baptized, and then you pledge your loyalty to the king by expressing your faith in Jesus. This is all a kingdom. And when we, when we realize that, we realize that we shouldn't compare Jesus so much to other like spiritual illuminaries, you know, like Confucius or Buddha. We should compare him more to people who are trying to build worldwide empires like Caesar or Napoleon. You know, uh, the, the earliest Christians called Jesus their Lord. Kyrios was the Greek word. And that's, uh, that's what the, the Romans called the Caesar. And so Jesus is a rival empire builder. Jesus expands his kingdom not with armies who invade other countries, but by his disciples loving their neighbors. And uh, Martin Luther King Jr. has a little book called uh, The Strength to Love. And he has, he has a quote in there about Jesus. This is what MLK, MLK says. He says, Napoleon Bonaparte, the great military genius, looking back over his years of conquest, is reported to have said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have built great empires. But upon what did they depend? They depended on force. But centuries ago, Jesus started an empire that was built on love. And even to this day, millions will die for him. And then he goes on to say, The empire of Jesus, built solidly and majestically on the foundation of love, is still growing. It started with a small group of dedicated men who, through the inspiration of their Lord, were able to shake the hinges from the gates of the Roman Empire and carry the gospel into all the world. Jesus is building an empire in the earth. It's two billion people strong right now. And heaven, what heaven is, is heaven is like the capital city where the king lives. You know, if you were a Roman citizen, it didn't necessarily mean that you lived in Rome. And just because you're a heavenly citizen like we are doesn't mean that you live in heaven. We are like colonists. And we're trying to take the cultural values, the laws, the traditions of heaven and establish them in a foreign land in the earth. And so that's what our whole mission is as Christians here. And so when we say that Christchurch Bellingham has a mission, what we mean is that we understand ourselves to be citizens of heaven planted in Bellingham, representing the throne of Jesus in this place. And we're inviting others to accept citizenship into Jesus' kingdom through baptism and to learn to live under his rule. So that's what the kingdom of God is. Now, in these parables, Jesus is trying to explain some of the ways of his kingdom, why his kingdom is different than the other empires in the world. And so uh, today, I want to list out for us five uh, ways of Jesus' kingdom that come out in these two parables that I just read to you. And this is what the five ways are. is that Jesus' kingdom work is plotting. His kingdom work is not dependent on human insight. His kingdom work is progressive. His kingdom work is always starting small. And his kingdom work is world-changing. So five insights about Jesus' kingdom. That it's plotting. It's, uh, it's not dependent on human insight. It's progressive. It's always starting small. And it is world-changing. And my hope is that these parables give us a vision uh, for our mission here at CCB. So five ways this morning. And the first is this. That kingdom work is plotting. Kingdom work is plotting. And I, I mentioned that the kingdom of God uh, means that we have a mission here at Christ Church. And I think for many of us, when you, you hear the word that a church has a mission, you might, what comes to mind to you is that we have a lot of work to do. 
We have to be active. And actually, in American Christianity, evangelicals have had a history of kind of grassroots activism and mission. If you go back to the, the early colonies, the American colonies, and George Whitfield was the, the evangelist who'd start the, have these revival gatherings, and they'd bring people out, and they'd preach the gospel, and there'd be all this excitement. And if you've ever been in a church that has thought that revivals are the regular diet of the Christian life, then you know how exhausting that is. That every Sunday is a revival. Every Sunday we've got to re-give our life to the Lord. Every Sunday we've got to stir up all this emotion and excitement. And it just it wears you out. And that's very different from the mundane picture of plotting that Jesus gives in this parable. You look at what it says there in verse 26. And Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. Now the guy in this parable seems like he has a pretty boring life. He gets up in the morning, he goes to look at his plants, and maybe puts some water on them, pulls the full weeds, and then goes back to bed. And he does it again. And he does it. It's Groundhog Day, just over and over again, just doing the same boring things. It's the mundane life of just plodding along. And plodding means to continue to make progress through something at a slow and laborious but consistent pace. And Jesus prepares us that that's how his kingdom grows, in a slow and unexciting way. And it means just doing the basic things of the Christian life with sincere hearts over years, over decades. And as that slow amount of time accumulates, God's kingdom begins to emerge. And what are the basics of the Christian life that we just plot along in? Well, it's like what we're doing here. We say, well, I go to church on Sunday. I gather with God's people and I worship with him. And we, we sit under God's word and we sing his praises and we come and we, we come to the Lord's table. And, uh, and this is one of the core values of Christ Church Bellingham is that we believe in giving ourselves to the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary ways that God says, this is how I give myself to my people. And uh, we're basically, you know, your grandma's church. We're not doing something different than grandma did or grandma's grandma did. It's the same thing that Christians have been doing across the world and throughout the ages. The simple commitment to God's word to love one another, to pray, and to come to his table. And that word ordinary can be deceiving because it can sound to us like if something's ordinary, then it's unimportant or it's ineffective. But when we hear the word ordinary, what should come to mind is the word ordained. These are the things that God has ordained, that this is how he gives his life to his people. And so why do we take communion every Sunday? Uh, is because Jesus has ordained, this is how I give you my life. And since he has ordained it that way, we give ourselves to this over and over. And we plod through this patiently and faithfully, waiting for God's kingdom to come. Now, you might wonder... Why would Christians ever want to do something more than just plotting? Well, and the answer is because you often can't see what's happening while you're plotting. You know, the guy who gets up every morning and he looks at his plant and he's like, is it different than yesterday? I can't really tell you. If you watch the plant, it's not going to grow. And so you just got to patiently do it. And what we want is we want to see big impact. We want to see big, important things happening. That's human pride that wants to see those things. It's not content with the patient, faithful plotting. And so that leads to a second insight from this passage. Not only that kingdom work is plotting, but second, kingdom work is not dependent on human insight. God's kingdom work is not dependent on human insight. And you see that there in verse 27. 
It says, he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. What Jesus is saying is that the impact of the kingdom is not something that we as humans can understand how it's working. It's often mysterious to us how God is working. There's something mysterious that's happening here. You know, if, if you take communion every week, the natural mind thinks all you're doing is you're eating some bread and drinking wine. But if you do this with a sincere and open heart, week after week, year after year, decade after decade, you know something is happening here. Jesus is giving himself to you. And you know that you need this in your life. Can you explain it? What's happening? No, we can't explain it. Is it mysterious? Yes, it's mysterious. Actually, uh, Peter Lightheart is one of my favorite theologians, has talked about the work of the Holy Spirit in the ordinary means of grace. He says that, you know, the Holy Spirit, for example, in baptism, baptism is the ordinary means that God gives his grace to people. And, uh, and the Holy Spirit works through and with baptism. How does it work? Well, uh, we don't know. And in fact, it works differently with all of us. You know, baptism is not like a vending machine. It doesn't work mechanically where you just put in a quarter and the same thing pops out. The Holy Spirit works personally with each one of us. He knows each one of us. He has a different plan for each one of us. And so there might be some children that come and the second that the water touches their forehead in baptism, they're given a new heart and they're given a heart of faith. And there might be another child who receives baptism in the same way and yet the Holy Spirit 30 years later makes good on that baptism and stirs their hearts and they say, I realize that I belong to the Lord and, and I want to love him. It's because the Holy Spirit has a different plan. It's personal. It's mysterious. And the kingdom does not come in a way that humans understand according to human insight. And so the reason we patiently do the plotting of the kingdom is because even though we sometimes cannot see the effect, we can't see the grain growing, the kingdom is not dependent on us or our understanding. And so we trust that mysteriously, God is at work. And often over time, we find that to be true. Okay, so first, the kingdom, kingdom work is plotting. Second, kingdom work is not dependent on human insight. The third thing we see in this passage is that kingdom work is progressive. Kingdom work is progressive. And you see that in verse 28, where it says, The earth produces by itself first the blade then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So Jesus is saying that the kingdom comes in these stages. There's first the, the blade and then the ear and then the full grain. And what this parable is, is teaching us is two important truths that God's kingdom, first of all, comes gradually and progressively in stages throughout history, throughout human history. And the second, that that progress will culminate in a final con conclusion that Jesus calls the harvest. This is when Jesus comes again to establish the fullness of his kingdom. So there's a final goal to human history. Now, this is a really important verse for us. Because in our day, the word progressive is used to describe someone who's on the political left. A progressive is someone who often say, make sure that you're not on the wrong side of history. And you hear that phrase, make sure you're not on the wrong side of history. What's assumed, what's the worldview that's assumed in that statement, make sure you're not on the wrong side of history, is that history is progressing, humanity is getting better, and make sure you're on the side of things getting better, not on the things regressing or getting worse. 
Now, it's important to know that especially if you're a progressive person, that the, uh, the whole idea of progress came into the Western consciousness through Christianity and verses like this one. Because pre-Christian cultures were not progressive. They believed that history was cyclical and was constantly repeating itself. And they believed if there was a golden age in history, it was probably in the past. It was back in the time of Homer. It was back in the time of Socrates or Plato. This is what both Greek cultures thought and Eastern cultures thought. And it was the Bible that introduced the idea that history was linear. That we are a part of a story that's leading toward the coming of God's kingdom in the future. The golden age isn't in the past, it's in the future. It's never come. There actually hasn't even been a golden age in history yet because it's coming in the future. Um, Every age has been flawed. And you might say, well, as far as I can tell, most progressive people don't seem to be Christians now. And, And that's true. But I want to explain why you can't truly be progressive without the Bible. You cannot truly be a progressive without the Bible. And the reason is this, because you can only make progress towards a fixed point. You can only make progress towards a fixed point. So let me, uh, let me give you an illustration to explain what I'm talking about. So uh, imagine you have a family, you have some young children, and you tell your children one day, you know, we're going to go to the zoo today. Down in Seattle, Woodland Park Zoo, we're going to take you to see the polar bears and the, and the snakes or whatever's down there. And so the kids are excited. You get in the car and you start heading down to Seattle on I-5. And you, you drive for an hour and the kids are like, are we getting closer? Are we making progress to get to Seattle? And you say, yeah, we're making progress. And then, and then an hour into the drive, you look on your phone and you realize, oh, the Woodland Park Zoo is closed today. We can't go to the zoo there today. And so you decide to turn around and you say, you know, there's a zoo across the border up in Canada. So you turn around and you head to a new destination up in Canada. So the question is, for that first hour, were you making progress toward the zoo? Well, not if you change destinations. No, you were going in the wrong direction. What's happening in our culture right now is we are constantly changing the goal of where is humanity moving towards? What are the values of what makes for healthy human life? What is a picture of a human society that we should move towards? And we say that everyone gets to decide their own goal for human life. That means the destination is constantly changing. If the destination is changing, you cannot make progress. And that's why we are experiencing that our culture is regressing because we've lost a sense of where we are moving. And so where do you get a goal for human life? Is the pastor going to make it up? Is our culture going to make it up? Is our, polit- our politicians going to make it up? The only place we can look is to our creator. The Bible gives us God's vision for human life. And if you want to see progress in human history, I can guarantee you there is nothing that has created more progress in human life than the Bible working in cultures throughout history. And I wish I had 100 hours to show you how that's true throughout history. But part of the reason that when we say things like, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history, we don't read history anymore. We don't know that the cultural impact that the Bible has had. And so we cannot make progress without a picture of the kingdom of God. And so kingdom work is progressive. It is gradually moving toward the day when the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And I should say that the Bible's vision of progress should give us a tremendous amount of optimism about the mission of our church. And so that leads to a a fourth quality about the kingdom I want to point out. So first, kingdom work is plotting, 
It's, it's just the ordinary means of grace. It's not dependent on human insight. It's progressive. It's gradually and slowly moving towards a goal. But the fourth thing we see in this passage is that kingdom work is always starting small. Kingdom work is always starting small. And uh, from that, that last point of optimism, that Jesus' kingdom is gonna, going to keep growing, progressively in stages, there can be a temptation for Christians to develop a kind of proud triumphalism. You know, Christians can say, we have the truth. Jesus' kingdom is going to win. And it gives us a sense of we're the best and everyone, no one gets it and we get it and we have the truth. And it gives us a sense of power and strength. And so it can be humbling when we're in a time period like ours right now where Christianity is in steep decline in our culture you know, church attendance is in free fall in American society. And you can say, well, where's the progress that we're seeing in our culture right now? Well, it's almost as if Jesus anticipated that question when he gives his next parable about the mustard seed. You see it there in verse 30, where it says, And Jesus said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we, uh, shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. Jesus' kingdom work is always starting small. It's always a mustard seed. And you might ask, well, when was the kingdom like a mustard seed? You know, back in the early church when there's just a few disciples, maybe that's when it was a mustard seed. Maybe it's a mustard seed right now. You know, not a lot of people in Bellingham go to church on Sunday. Maybe we're a mustard seed. And uh, I think as you uh, look through history, you'll find that God's kingdom is always like a mustard seed. It's always on the margins. And in fact, when I, when I said uh, that history is linear and that the kingdom is growing toward the golden age in the future, that's not exactly right. The path of Christian history is always death and resurrection. The church is always dying and rising again. Actually, G.K. Chesterton uh, in his book, The Everlasting Man, has a chapter called The Five Deaths of the Faith, where he says, Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. In our day, it is dying in Western Europe and in the United States and Canada. It's rising in Africa and South America and China. Death and resurrection is the path of God's kingdom. And so we embrace that we will always feel to some degree that we are small and we are marginalized. Our king went to the cross. He was crucified. And we are a church that believes in starting small. One of the things we believe in here is church planting. Church plants are small seeds of new communities like this starting. This church started with four families before I was even a pastor here. Four families who just met every week, every, once a month to pray and ask for a new church. That's the mustard seed of the kingdom. And we long for more mustard seeds like that to form all over the Pacific Northwest. And so what we've learned so far about Jesus' kingdom is, is it comes through plotting. It's the faithful commitment to the ordinary means of grace through which God is working in ways beyond human insight or understanding, slowly making progress toward the goal of human history and the, uh, of Jesus' kingdom being established in the earth. But the path will always be death and resurrection, death and resurrection, death and resurrection. We will never grow out of being the mustard seed. But I want to point out one last observation from this passage. Is that Jesus' kingdom work is world changing. Jesus' kingdom work is world changing. 
And you see that there in verse 32, where Jesus says, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So Jesus is using the image of his kingdom being like a great tree. And this image is borrowed from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament books like Daniel, trees were used to describe the great empires of the ancient world, like the Babylonians and the Persians in the 6th century. And what Jesus is saying is that his kingdom is going to grow to be bigger than all the other empires that the world has ever known. And, uh, and he was right. His kingdom right now is bigger than the United States. It's bigger than China. It's bigger than India. It's bigger than the Roman Empire ever was. It's bigger than the Ottoman Empire ever was. The biggest empires in human history, Jesus is the one who has established the most enduring and the largest. And these birds are coming from, are, these birds that are in the parable are, are people from every ethnic group and language on the planet. Jesus' empire welcomes a diversity of people. And when we talk about being progressive, if you want to know who is the person in history that has had the ability to connect with the most diverse cultures and, and races and people groups and languages, it is Jesus Christ. Asians, people in Asia, they love him. People in Africa, they love him. White people love him. All kinds of people, whatever background you come from, he has proven through history that the love of Jesus has drawn them to do exactly what we're doing here, to sit under God's word and hear his promises, to come to his table. They are all drawn by that same love. And so, friends, we are a part of a kingdom with a mission. The heart of that mission is the king who didn't send out his people to die as soldiers for his empire. He went and died for them so that we could be a part of his empire. And though we plod along week in and week out doing the ordinary means of grace, Jesus is working in mysterious ways beyond human insight. His kingdom progressively growing throughout history through death and resurrection, death and resurrection, like a small mustard seed that's growing into a great tree. And why do we give ourselves to this blotting? Is because we believe in our king. He is the only world changer. His is the only empire will give our deepest loyalty to. We love him because he first loved us. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kingdom. It is the deep desire of our hearts. We pray that you would establish your kingdom here in Bellingham, in our region, in the Pacific Northwest, in our country, and in every nation. Lord, we long to see your kingdom come. We love our king. And we thank you that we've, you've made us a part of your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.